Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Podcast public service announcement. You're about to hear an episode in the middle of a multi-part show arc. If you haven't heard the previous episodes, we suggest you skip back to part one of this topic in the feed and listen in order. All right, Paranoid Strain Orchestra, hit it. At least I'm finished with those topics. Now we can move back to a more traditional secret society, the Rosicrucians. What do you mean, traditional? Well, I mean the Rosicrucians have been around for a long time. It's not like one dude created them out of thin air 65 years ago, as was the case with the Priory of Sion. Oh, so the Rosicrucians were actually founded when they claimed to have been founded? Well, uh... I mean, because we know when the Templars were founded. Counter-arguments by the Holy Blood Idiot Society, they were chartered in 1119 in Jerusalem with witnesses and everything. So the Rosicrucians are like that? Let's maybe say the Rosicrucians are an interesting middle path between the Templars and the Priory of Sion. They, for real, date back to the early 17th century. But hardly any Rosicrucians, either past or present, appear to accept that date for the actual founding of the order. Most insist on an origin point that is centuries older, starting with a man whose name, conveniently enough, is that of the order itself. Then what's the deal with this founder guy? When was he a going concern? That's where the Priory of Sion comparisons come in. It seems very likely that this man, Christian Rosenkreutz, never existed per se. You're getting weird on me again, Jesuit. And my ibuprofen and whiskey supply is getting dangerously low. Hold your horses, Unicorn. The Rosicrucians share elements with the other societies we've surveyed, but are mostly notable for what makes them unique. So let's take the opposite tack from what we did when excavating the many layered lies of the Da Vinci Code and start from the verifiable facts before we fill in the strange and legendary history of this fascinating group. First things first, a discussion of our sources. While the Rosicrucians pop up in conspiracy theorists' writing surprisingly frequently, our diligent efforts to track down well-regarded mainstream histories of the movement largely foundered. There are some notable surveys of the topic, but not many, and aside from the two books that we're consulting, most are unavailable for anything less than truly usurious prices online. We love you folks, but we don't $131 for a single used out-of-print hardcover love you. Now, there are tons of books out there purporting to relate the secrets of the Rosicrucians, or the mystical origins of the Rosicrucians, but you know how we feel about those books. That is, Unless they're hilarious, there is no point in advertising unqualified internet Yahoo's opinions about anything. Again, we have to stress that only applies if those opinions are not hilarious. With those limitations in mind, then, we are happy to have found two books that seem, in spite of their author's shared tendencies toward mild woo-wooery, to be relatively well-grounded in historical fact and not overly subject to wild conjecture. 
In other words, neither of these is rosy blood, crossy grail, if you get our drift. The first is a slim volume that's just chock full of interesting material, called simply The Rosicrucians. Its author, Christopher McIntosh, was definitely a little more comfortable with mysticism than we might prefer, but he's overall got a good head on his shoulders. Jesuit wasn't so sanguine when he read this passage about magic at the beginning of the book, though. Quote, The mental effects all take their starting point from the telepathy, while the physical ones may be regarded as deliberately induced poltergeist effects, in which objects are made to move by some curious power of the unconscious mind. I have come to increasingly believe that the actual energy used is the same energy that causes a dowsing rod to twist in the hands of the water diviner, probably some form of earth magnetism that can be channeled by the right cerebral hemisphere. End quote. Yeah, that didn't sound so promising, but then I realized those dipsy thoughts belong to a totally different guy who wrote the foreword to the book. Macintosh indeed says some stuff that makes us slightly queasy. He's a little too comfortable talking about how astrological signs portended the rise of Rosicrucianism, for example, and doesn't distance himself from various magical claims as strongly as we might prefer. But the study of Rosicrucianism seems to attract those of a sort of mystical-friendly temperament, and Macintosh's clear, straightforward presentation mostly stays on the straight and narrow. Our other guide here is Tobias Churton, author of The Invisible History of the Rosicrucians. He's also a little wooish for our normal taste, being, as his author bio points out, a perfected Knight of the Rose Qua and the Pelican, 18th degree, ancient and accepted right. Which I mean, okay, I guess. Jesuit, what are you doing here? Whatever this Rosicrucian shit is, it sounds like Churton bought it hook, line, and sinker. Is this book a just-so story of the truth of the Rosy Cross? Again, it's not that simple. He indeed seems deeply enmeshed in mysticism, pointing out in the introduction to his book that he finds himself more attracted to fictional depictions of spiritual visions than of gritty reality, that he finds the former, when properly handled, truer than the latter. And just as with Macintosh, he does seem a little too comfortable relating, for example, the importance of astrological signs as foretelling the movement's ascension without quickly and clearly distancing himself from those opinions. But on the other hand, who cares? He's enough of a scholar to have been named a lecturer on the Western esoteric tradition by the University of Exeter in Great Britain. And, it turns out, he was a writer for that 1980s BBC documentary series, The Gnostics, which we excerpted when discussing the Catharist theological disputes with the Catholic Church. And that series is pretty great. Also, that Knight of the Rose Croix and Pelican 18th degree stuff is not so much purely Rosicrucian as it is Masonic with a Rosicrucian twist. So, with our slightly unorthodox guidebooks in hand, we survey the limited, sometimes confusing, but unquestionably interesting facts about the beginnings of this movement and its legendary founder, Christian Rosenkreutz. Here's the very, very short version of the real, verifiable facts of the origin story of the Rosicrucians. In 1614, a pamphlet appeared in Germany called the Fama Fraternitatis Rosiae Crucis oder Die Bruderschaft des Ordens der Rosenkreuzer. So glad you had to pronounce that. It announced the existence and origins of a secret society of learned Christians founded by the leader who gave the group its name. The book, along with its follow-up, the Confessio Fraternitatis, which was published in 1615, invited all learned men of Europe to join this society, which would shortly begin revolutionizing the world through the application of ancient wisdom and modern science. Finally, in 1616, a third book was published, The Chemical Romance of Christian Rosenkreuz, which is completely different from the other two manifestos, but is considered an important part of the Rosicrucian phenomenon. 
These anonymous books spread like wildfire across Europe, leading scholars and students to take sides for or against the society, causing many to seek to join and generally resulting in a sort of Rosicrucian fever whose repercussions are still felt in the secret societies of today. Okay, with those basic facts out of the way, let's dig a little deeper. First things first, as we noted before, there was very likely no such historical figure as Christian Rosenkreutz. His existence and biography appears to have been ginned up to provide a backstory to the ideas contained in those early Rosicrucian works, which began appearing in the early 17th century in the German Duchy of Württemberg. The region boasted a great university, Tübingen, whose most notable contemporary graduate, Johannes Kepler, was in the midst of the research and writing that would lead to his groundbreaking loss of planetary motion. So, real-life, insanely great science was going on in the intellectual ferment centered in this institution. But remember, this is the early 17th century, so that means many of the people who were working on these scientific breakthroughs were also working on difficult problems in such sciences as alchemy and astrology. Those aren't sciences, Jesuit. Agreed. They're both fantasies based on human misunderstandings of the way the universe works. But at the time, the smartest, best-educated people in the world didn't know that. And some of their most diligent efforts to develop knowledge in what turned out to be intellectual dead ends inadvertently helped us to develop the real, objective, fruitful sciences that have revolutionized human existence over the past four centuries. Regardless, though, back to the subject of Christian Rosenkreutz and his almost certain non-existence. It's hardly unheard of for a legendary figure to have stories associated with him, but the details that are available to flesh out the biography of this almost definitely fictional person are pretty extraordinary. We know, for example, that he was born in 1378, and that though he was descended from nobility, he was left in a cloister, that is, a monastery, at age five. Our primary sources don't include this stuff, but various other versions of the story provide specifics about his past. That, in fact, he was the final scion of the legendary family of Gammelshausen. Bless you. That wasn't a sneeze, Jesuit. Anywho, the family was reportedly wiped out by Konrad von Marburg, a nobleman, priest, and famous 13th-century persecutor of heretics. He destroyed the Gammelshausens, these sources report, because they were a secret outpost of the Cathar heresy. Quelle horreur! Now it definitely sounds better when she says it. In this version, young CRC, as contemporary texts usually refer to our Christian Rosenkreuz, was saved from this fate, spirited away to a monastery to keep him safe when his family was wiped out. In fact, some say that he was the actual treasure spirited out of the Mont Segur during its fall. See our earlier discussion of the Cathar's fiery demise. Hey, how did we end up switching roles in this section? I'm supposed to do the historical narratives. Now, this Germelhausen scenario is fun, but almost immediately runs into some problems. For example, Conrad von Marburg lived from 1180 to 1233. The fall of Mont Segur was in 1244, and as we noted, CRC's birth date is given in our primary sources as 1378. It would be tough for him to be spirited away from the destruction of his legendary family in the mid-13th century, only to arrive at age five in a monastery 140 or so years later. So even though there are additional, super-unrealistic accretions that have been added to the original legend over the centuries, even the quote-unquote real story of Rosenkreutz is purely imagined. As we noted, there's almost certainly no such historical person. CRC was created for a literary fiction and then adapted to be the avatar for the philosophy extolled by the so-called Rosicrucian manifestos. But we can learn a lot from how his pseudo-biography is presented, so we'll use the story of his life as related by the first of these tracts. Recall, that's the Fama Fraternitatis, originally circulated in 1614. 
The bulk of this pamphlet details the life and journeys of CRC from his aforementioned tenure in a monastery to his departure to seek wisdom in the Holy Land. This is, recall, the post-Crusades period when what Christians refer to as the Holy Land, that is essentially Israel and the surrounding areas, have been reclaimed by Islamic forces long after the heyday of the Crusader states and the Knights Templar. But it's more confusing even than that. This narrative purports to have taken place 200 plus years before it was actually composed. That is, the story is set in Germany in the late 14th century, but the whole thing was dreamed up, written, and published in the early 17th century. So in a sense, it's historical fiction, like creating a modern superhero but setting her exploits in the 18-teens. Okay, so what did CRC learn in his journey to the mysterious East? Oh, fucked on, apparently. He headed out to Jerusalem with a buddy called only P.A.L. They're big on initials in Rosicrucian manifestos. Unfortunately, P.A.L. kicked the bucket along the way, but CRC persevered, ending up in Damascus working as a 16-year-old physician. Here we'll quote from the Fama itself. And because of his skill in medicine, he obtained much favor with the Turks, and even became acquainted by chance with the wise men who were from Damkar in Arabia, and beheld what great wonders they wrought, and how nature was revealed to them. The high and noble spirit of Brother CRC became so stirred up by these discoveries that Jerusalem was not so much on his mind anymore, but rather Damasco. Eventually he could not bridle his desires any longer, and made a bargain with some Arabians that they would carry him for a certain sum of money to Damkar. According to his report, the wise men received him not as a stranger, but as one whom they had long expected. They called him by his name, and showed him other secrets about himself, and when they knew so much, he could only mightily wonder. Now, in case that was confusing, he was in Damascus, which is today the capital of Syria, and which at the time Europeans apparently called Damasco. But the mystics he met with were from Damkar, which today is called Damar and is in Yemen. So he traveled from Damascus to Damkar, which is a journey of about 2,000 miles that crosses Saudi Arabia the long way. Amusingly, Turton's Invisible History notes that the original printer assumed there was a typo and replaced Damkar with Damasco. So in that version, CRC undertook a long and perilous journey from Damascus to Damascus. He made it to Damkar and was embraced by the wise men there and learned a lot. Like what? Let's ask the Fama. He learned the Arabian tongue better there, so that in the following year he translated the book M into good Latin, which he afterwards brought with him. This is the place where he learned the advanced medicine and mathematics that the world would have great cause to rejoice over, if only it were filled with more love and less envy. Okay, so he took in a lot of advanced science and mathematics. Do they explain what exactly that entailed? They do not, but hold on to that question for a second. CRC next goes to Egypt, where apparently he just wanted to look at local fauna and flora before proceeding to Fez in Morocco, where he learned still more from still other wise men. Once again, we don't get details, but we do get this interesting description of how scientists of this region behave differently from European scientists. It is a great embarrassment to our culture that these wise men, so far remote the one from the other, should not only be of one opinion, hating all contentious writings, but also be so willing and ready, under the seal of secrecy, to impart their secrets to others. Every year the Arabians and Africans do send people to each other, inquiring about the arts of the others, to find if they had found out some better things, or if experience had weakened their previous positions. Yearly something came to light whereby their mathematics, medicine, and magic, for in these subjects the wise men of Fez are most skillful, were amended. 
There is nowadays no want of learned men in Germany, magicians, cabalists, physicians, and philosophers. If only there was more love and kindness among them, or that the most part of them would not keep their secrets close only to themselves. This, more than any other excerpt we've heard, gets to the heart of why the Fama, as well as the other tracts, were published in the first place. But again, let's keep a pin in that and note only that it's not all holding hands in Kumbaya for CRC in the lands of Islam. The tract's author is only too happy to throw shade at the followers of what to him was an obviously false religion. He often confessed that amongst these wise men of Fez their magic was not altogether pure, and also that their Kabbalah was defiled with their religion. But he still knew how to make good use of all of it, and found still better grounds for his faith, altogether agreeable with the harmony of the whole world, and wonderfully impressed in all periods of time. Learning all he could from the wise men of Fez, he shipped off after two fruitful years, eager to share what he had learned with his European brethren, who were both wise and followed the correct religion. Unfortunately, when he arrived in Spain and attempted to offer the improvements, enhancements, and corrections that he had learned to the sciences practiced there, he found his audiences uninterested in the new knowledge, as embracing it would require them to admit their previous errors, and maybe make them look stupid. He tried the other nations of Europe. Same result. No thank you. Seems weird that no one would want the wisdom of the ages, doesn't it? Sure does, especially since the Fama makes it clear that CRC could totally do that one weird trick that alchemical doctors don't want you to know about. Eternal youth? No, though he apparently did learn some significant life extension techniques. The tract has him dying at the ripe old age of 106, pretty long in the tooth for the 1400s. But the big trick was that Rosenkreutz was perfectly capable of transmuting base metals into gold. The holy grail, if you'll pardon the expression, of alchemists since time immemorial. Rejected, CRC took his ancient knowledge football and went home to Germany. After a five-year period of reviewing and synthesizing what he had learned, he decided that if the wise of Europe aren't going to get on his new knowledge train, then he'll build his own secret society to disseminate this learning and begin quietly influencing the world for the better. So he created an ersatz Justice League of Esoteric Learning, eight scholars who dedicated themselves to chastity, study, and healing the sick for no monetary gain. They assembled a library of obscure and occulted knowledge, constructed around a mysterious tome referred to only as Book M, which Rosenkreutz had read and translated on his journey. The eight members of the Rosicrucian Brotherhood individually traveled the world doing good, led long lives, but eventually started dying off, and so a succession plan was hatched, such that each would train a replacement in his old age and the society's membership would thereby stay at the appointed number. CRC, as noted earlier, outlived all of the original society members he had recruited, plus some of their successors, eventually croaking at age 106, presumably in 1484. At this point, our narrators relate the story of how they personally came to hear about this secret society, as they make it clear that they were not part of the original group formed by CRC, but rather contemporary scholars of the early 17th century. They claim they were brought into the fraternity by a latter-day member to whom the group's existence and secrets had been passed on. All that is, except the secret final resting place of Brother CRC, which had been lost to time. So you can imagine the author's surprise when their group decided to do a little remodeling of the Spiritus Sanctus, or House of the Holy Spirit, that CRC and his cronies had built. Basically, the Rosicrucian Hall of Justice, but with less Batman. When they pulled some plaster off the wall, they realized there was a secret door behind which they found the tomb of CRC and all of the many volumes of wisdom that he and the original Rosicrucians had developed, undisturbed in the 120 years since Rosenkreutz's death. Must have taken a while to air out the erudite stink. Au contraire, Unicorn. Apparently CRC's body had not decayed in any way since his death, what with the magic and all. 
The story wraps up by essentially throwing open the doors of membership in the formerly eight-person society to all of the wise men of Europe. We, his brethren, request again that all the learned in Europe who shall read this our farmer and confessio, which we have sent forth in five languages, that it would please them with good deliberation to ponder this our offer, and to examine most nearly and sharply their arts, and behold the present time with all diligence, and to declare their mind, either communicato concilio or singulatim by print. Wait, you said they send out the fama, but also the confessio. What's the second one? The confessio is essentially a list of 37 points about how great the Rosicrucian order is, why people should be excited to join it, how it's shortly going to begin revolutionizing all of Europe with its science and wisdom, etc. The only thing we really need to note about it for our purposes is that it's the one that gives CRC's birth date as 1378. Then, a year after that, a completely different sort of book emerged. This one supposedly written by Rosenkreutz himself as a first-person fable or allegory, sort of a similar form to the Divine Comedy, if y'all are lit nerds, called The Chemical Wedding, they no, that's a chemical romance. This is a chemical wedding. Specifically, the chemical wedding of Christian Rosenkreutz. What's the plot? CRC realizes that if he loves alchemy so much, why doesn't he marry it? Not exactly. It's a long, interesting allegorical story taking place over seven days, a period corresponding to the traditional days of the Feast of Passover, during which CRC is invited to a royal wedding and sees many wonders. We're not going over the whole thing here, as it's one big, long, simple fest the kind that's seemingly designed specifically to keep those of a conspiracist mindset poring over the various figures and arguing over what they represent. But suffice it to say that some weird shit happens. Including a scene on the fourth day wherein the betrothed king and queen, along with several other nobles, watch a play in seven acts, costume change from white to black clothes, and are summarily beheaded by an executioner who is himself then beheaded. Oh, and then servants catch the royal blood in goblets and put those in the coffins with their bodies. Again, there are three more days of allegory after this scene. Indeed. But we mention this book for a couple of reasons. The first is, although it came out after the Fama and Confessio, and is not, like the others, a clear call for membership in the Rosicrucian order, its mysterious, alluring tale may have done more than the other two to spur interest in the Rosicrucians among 17th century enthusiasts. The second reason is that it appears actually to have been written years before it was published, and years before the other tracks were written when its author was only 17 years old. It sounds like you actually know who wrote that one. Indeed. The author eventually fessed up to having written The Chemical Wedding, though the other two tracks remained anonymous. But in taking a closer look at that author, Johann Valentin André, we can shed more light on the emergence of all three books and perhaps make sense of the whole Rosicrucian phenomenon. Churton fills in the biography. Andre came from a family of noted theologians. His beloved father died when the boy was only 15, which is when his mother moved the family to Tübingen, where she served as an apothecary to the court of Württemberg. He was an academic star. Quote, Johann Valentin was duly enrolled at the university where the lonely, intense, but good-hearted boy distinguished himself as a brilliant student of classical languages, poetry, Renaissance literature, physics, mechanics, and chemistry. André was also unquestionably a literary genius. Again, the man wrote The Chemical Wedding when he was about 17 years old. 
a period during which young Jesuit was writing emo poetry so bad that should it ever emerge into the light of day, he would spontaneously combust from shame. That's not true. Shit. Yeah, unlike nearly everyone who picked up a pen in his teens, Andre was clearly possessed of true literary gifts, creating a rich and arresting book that fascinates people to this day, four centuries later. But the thing is, he appears never to have intended to publish it. He was by day a respected theologian, lecturer, and scholar, but he also had a youthful interest in the study of esoteric and hermetic knowledge. You'll recall that hermetic texts are works that date back to the early Christian era, are attributed to a legendary figure called Hermes Trismegistus, an attempt to synthesize all divine wisdom across all religions into one overall system. We discussed them earlier. Thus his creation of the chemical wedding. Andre's role in authoring the other two tracks is more questionable. Many believe he collaborated with one or more co-authors on the Fama, but he likely had nothing to do with the Confessio. So, who else wrote these books? Tougher to say, but it's likely that the other author or authors came from a group of Andre's friends in and around the university. As both of our authors explain, the world of ideas in 17th century Germany was exciting and sometimes dangerous. The authority of religion was fractured. While the Catholic Church still held sway over much of Europe, the Protestant Reformation that had begun a century before had by then become well ensconced throughout Germany. The divisions among Catholics and Protestants would, a few years after the publication of the Manifestos, lead to the appalling bloodshed of the Thirty Years' War, in the aftermath of which Catholic Europe, and especially the Holy Roman Empire, which held sway over most of what we currently call Germany, would be dramatically diminished in power, and citizens would increasingly be allowed to worship whichever flavor of Christianity they preferred. The years prior to this conflict were a time of intellectual ferment and utopian visions for the future of religion and knowledge. Churton notes that the scientific luminaries of this period, people who would completely revolutionize our understanding of the universe, including Copernicus, Kepler, and Newton, had worldviews that took religious orthodoxy, celestial omens, and other concepts that would strike us as non-scientific just as seriously as they took their calculations. Quote, While the science was disputed, debated, dismissed, and often repressed in Kepler's time, arguments over the Bible and the stars were nonetheless regarded as scientific debates, debates of knowledge. Copernicus reckoned the sun's central position was implied by hermetic philosophy dating back, he thought, to the time of Moses. And of course, alchemy, the magic besotted precursor of chemistry, was ever-present among those seeking to understand the mysteries of creation. And because all of these factors were in the world and on the minds of the authors of the Rosicrucian manifestos, their writing captured these currents and, in a sense, froze them in amber. So everyone reading the manifestos throughout future centuries would be presented with an array of esoteric, astrological, Protestant, and alchemical ideas that would permanently become a part of the very concept of Rosicrucianism. Like, if the manifestos had been written in the 1920s, the Rosicrucians might forever be linked to prohibition, flabbers, pole-sitting, polite anti-Semitism, and organized crime. Kind of, yeah. So, over the centuries, some potentially accidental aspects of the manifestos became part of the Rosicrucians' whole aesthetic. But this still leaves us with a question. Why did Andre and the others write these things? The key seems to lie in that part of the CRC pseudobiography we highlighted earlier, where the young Rosenkreutz sees how the most learned scholars in Arabia, that is, the Middle East, and Africa, meet regularly to review their discoveries and correct their errors. Now, this assertion is pure conjecture. It's not as if Andre and the other authors necessarily knew this to be a fact about scholars thousands of miles away when there's no indication that any of the folks who wrote this thing had ever been to those locations. But just as clearly the anonymous authors wanted this sort of cooperation among European Christian scholars, and they found it totally lacking among their contemporaries. 
And so they hatched an idea that would take as its main character the narrator of André's earlier work in The Chemical Wedding, which was not officially published by then, but was indeed circulating among the Tübingen intelligentsia in manuscript form. They would give this character, Christian Rosenkreutz, a backstory that made him into a wandering alchemist and seeker of knowledge, a real thing at the time. Recall that hundreds of years earlier, the Crusades had brought advanced and esoteric knowledge back from the Holy Land to Europe, and so intrepid seekers after wisdom, though not our authors, probably, would continue to journey to those lands in search of knowledge for centuries after the Templars were pushed out of Jerusalem. From this, they concocted a story where our pure-of-heart hero, having stumbled upon the greatest wisdom of the ancients, brings it back to Christian Europe, is rejected by preeminent scholars, and therefore creates his own secret society dedicated to further study and to using what he had learned to improve the lives and societies of all Christendom. Okay, so they fabricated up the backstory, but was it just a narrative that was designed to get other like-minded intellectuals to join their quest for cooperation and learning? Like, had they formed an actual Rosicrucian Brotherhood and just ginned up a good background to attract new adherents? Weirdly, it seems like there was no actual Rosicrucian Brotherhood in existence at the time. Not even one that the authors threw together in advance of their call for new members. So, you're saying that the only Rosicrucians when the Fama came out in 1614 were the fictional ones and the Fama itself? Yeah, that appears to be the case. Moreover, Churton suggests that André and his co-authors may never have intended to actually publish the Fama, and so were unprepared to deal with the consequences once it came out. As we know, of course, you can't prove a negative, so it's not possible to prove that there wasn't a pre-existing group of Rosicrucians, just like it's not possible to definitively say there was not a Christian Rosenkreuz. But the evidence indicates that the whole thing emerged out of the publication of the manifestos rather than the other way around. There are other factors as well. Jordan points out that the period around the publication of the manifestos was uniquely apocalyptic. Various years supposedly held great prophetic significance. He mentioned 1620, but 1666 was also read by many theologians and students of prophecy to be important portentous years, potentially precursors to the second coming of Christ. Which, if you've read the book of Revelations, is not exactly a super chillaxed time period. Andre and his compatriots in this reading may have deliberately published their ideas in an effort to stave off the apocalypse through a change of heart among all humankind. But even assuming they did intend to publish, it admittedly strains credulity to believe that someone would deliberately set out to create an invisible secret society and correctly assume that declaring that society's existence would actually cause those who were attracted to the story to create that society in the real world. But is that really any more unlikely than the definitely true-life conspiracy kaleidoscope launched by the frauds planted by Plantard, de Cherisy, and Corbu in our previous story? Perhaps the most notable thing you realize when reading the three tracks that launched the mysterious, amorphous thing that is still called Rosicrucianism 400 years later is that while the Fama and Confessio refer extensively to the wisdom that Brother CRC acquired, they don't actually provide that wisdom to readers. Like, not even a taste. Instead, they tell the legend of the founding and then call for interested individuals to seek out the Brotherhood that they might join, study, and learn from said wisdom. Which, since again, at this point, no Rosicrucian order actually existed, is a pretty neat trick. It's like the stone soup of esoteric intellectual traditions. Please explain this analogy? As many of you already know, there's a famous children's story called Stone Soup, in which two hobos come to a village where everyone claims not to have any food to share with their starving visitors. On the edge of the well and shouted, We are master cooks! If anyone in this town has a big black pot, we will make the most delicious soup anyone ever tasted. 
the travelers filled the pot with cold water and built a fire. Soon the flames licked the sides of the pot and billows of steam rose into the air. Curious people began to gather. What is happening? The townspeople asked. We are making an unusual soup, said one of the travelers. It requires a special magical ingredient. I am certain we will find it in this town. All the eyes in the crowd watched as one of the travelers reached down and picked up an ordinary stone. He tossed it into the pot with a splash. We're making stone soup, he said. It will be nutritious, delicious, incredible, and edible. But it would taste better. He paused and sighed. <sighs> if we only had a carrot. The itinerant chefs announce they're cooking a magical soup, and if anybody contributes ingredients, they'll get a share. The selfish villagers all want a bowl and start heaving in the vegetables and meats that they had been previously hoarding. Eventually, of course, the ingredients the villagers add creates the soup through the magic of cooperation and gullibility. The stone is the catalyst for the action, but doesn't actually do anything. Ah, I get it. The manifestos of the stone, the effect they'll have on readers across Europe is the soup. Exactly. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.